Hello and welcome. I'm Cleona Nianlun, producer of the Davis Now Lectures. This series entitled Engaging Spaces and first broadcast in 2002 explores the timely subject of the nature of space in our lives, how we occupy space and are engaged by it. Here from that series is the lecture Symbolic Streetscapes, Interrogating Monumental Spaces of Dublin, which decodes the symbolic spaces of urban areas and demonstrates that such landscapes are often contested and highly political. The lecturer is Dr Yvonne Whelan of the Irish Academy for Cultural Studies, Derry. On October 21st, 1805, Horatio, Lord Nelson, fell mortally wounded at the Battle of Trafalgar. Four years later, in 1809, crowds gathered in the centre of Dublin to watch in eager anticipation as a tall, Corinthian column topped with a statue of the dead admiral, was unveiled in the middle of Sackville Street. Those jubilant scenes were in marked contrast to events that took place over a century and a half later, in 1966, the year that marked the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. Then, in the early morning of March the 8th, explosives that had been primed and planted in the Nelson Monument rocked Dublin's most central thoroughfare, O'Connell Street and the figure of Nelson came toppling to the ground. The site subsequently remained vacant until December 2000, when the Irish government announced that a new monument, to be known as the Spire of Dublin, was to be erected on the site of the old pillar. This steel structure, striking for its overtly apolitical nature, is now set to transform the streetscape and create an innovative, symbolic space in the heart of Dublin. It will stand tall alongside a range of other monuments erected in previous decades and centuries to heroes of earlier ages, from Daniel O'Connell to Father Theobald Matthew, and from Charles Stuart Parnell to Jim Larkin. These monuments are much more than merely ornamental features of the cultural landscape. They are highly symbolic signifiers that confer meaning on space and transform otherwise neutral places into ideologically charged sites of symbolic meaning. Like the names that we give our streets and towns, the buildings we build, or the ways in which we design our cities, towns and villages, monuments are fundamentally spatial phenomena. As icons of identity, they draw upon the cultural resources of the past in order to reinforce the dominance of particular ruling authorities. At the same time, Public statues can act as focal points around which resistance and opposition can be channelled. This is especially true in post-colonial contexts, when they often become implicated in programmes of nation-building and state formation. My concern here is with the nature and function of symbolic spaces. When Mary Robinson was inaugurated as President of Ireland in 1990, she spoke of the importance of symbols. Symbols are what unite and divide people. Symbols give us our identity, our self-image, our way of explaining ourselves to ourselves and to others. Symbols, in turn, determine the kinds of stories we tell. And the stories we tell determine the kind of history we make and remake. In recent years, cultural geographers have begun to focus their research on space as a setting for the exercise of power. The fact that our world is an accumulation of spaces, as much as an accumulation of the experiences of time, 
has been recognised. The geographer Cole Harris, drawing upon the work of Michel Foucault, suggests that social power is no longer conceived apart from its geographical context. Such power, he says, requires space. Its exercise shapes space, and space shapes social power. Different cultures, then, use space to express themselves, and the language employed is very often symbolic. Think for a moment about the town or village landscape in which you live. What makes that space symbolic? In Northern Ireland, where I now live, symbolic space abounds. Annual parades harness the symbolism of space through the careful routing of public marches. First and Second World War memorials in local towns and rural villages are invariably topped by a lone male figure armed with a rifle. Curbstones are variously painted red, white and blue or green, white and gold. Wall murals and flags are very often attached to buildings and to lampstands. They transform seemingly innocuous features of the cultural landscape into highly symbolic artefacts. Meanwhile, a range of new, unofficial and oftentimes highly contentious monuments commemorating victims of the Troubles are finding their way into the cultural landscape. One of the geographer's tasks is to decode the many-layered meanings of symbolic space. We need to read and interpret spatial iconography and to explore the ways in which such spaces are closely implicated in the exercise of power and resistance. Developments in the field of cultural geography have paved the way for an approach to the urban landscape as a depository of symbolic space and time with which people engage, rework, appropriate and contest. Drawing on the art historian's iconographic method, the symbolic meaning inherent in the urban landscape has come into sharp focus. The cultural geographer Dennis Cosgrove suggests that all landscapes are symbolic. They reproduce cultural norms and establish the values of dominant groups across all of a society. So the iconographic method seeks to explore the meanings of cultural and symbolic landscapes on the ground. It describes the form and composition of landscapes in their social and historical contexts. Moreover, geographical iconography accepts that landscape meanings are unstable, contested and highly political. Geographers have been spurred on by these developments and the upsurge of interest in the forces at work in the production of landscape. They have begun to explore the role of public statuary in articulating the politics of power and expressing national identity in a variety of different contexts. The individuals or events commemorated, the sites in which they are erected, the choreography of ceremonies centred on them and the orchestration of public participation around them have all become a focus of study. For those of us who are concerned with understanding the dynamics of symbolic spaces, acts of memorialisation are of much significance. As objects of a people's national pilgrimage, statues are signifiers of memory that commemorate key events or individuals. As dynamic sites of meaning and memory which transform neutral spaces into sites of ideology, public statues help to legitimate structures of authority and dominance. 
They are also used to challenge and resist such structures and to cultivate alternative narratives of identity. They are often used by groups that are at odds with established regimes as a means of challenging the legitimacy of governments. In Ireland, monumental spaces have proved to be a potent symbolic commodity, not least during the 20th century when the Irish Free State came into being and the six counties of Northern Ireland became a separate political entity. Before 1922, the full island of Ireland was firmly incorporated into the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. It became the canvas upon which the British administration and agents loyal to it set out to paint a picture of union and loyalty to empire. Indeed, the five visits of three different royal monarchs to the island in the first 11 years of the 20th century clearly demonstrated this. Towns and villages throughout the land were lavishly decorated and parade routes were carefully plotted. Space became politicised in a manner that underscored the island's status as a constituent component of empire. Ireland was also, however, as the historian Stephen Howe points out, a sphere of ambiguity, tension, transition, hybridity between national and imperial spheres. So, we can see that the implications of this contested political context for the monumental spaces of the island were many, and we can explore these by considering the iconography of Dublin's cultural landscape at the turn of the 20th century. In 1900, visitors to the city would have found themselves in a landscape peopled with a variety of figures cast in stone. Statues that had been erected during the 18th and 19th centuries commemorated a myriad of figures closely connected to the British administration, from kings and queens to members of the military establishment. In the heart of the city, Kings William III, George I and George II, Lord Nelson and the Duke of Wellington, each occupied dominant positions. They were representative of a broader, countrywide trend to embody in stone the link with empire. These monuments were points of physical and ideological orientation. They comprised one dimension of a monumental landscape that was consistently added to over the course of three centuries. These statues were located in prominent sites and unveiled with displays of much ritual, pomp and choreographed ceremony. They contributed to the creation of a one-sided symbolic landscape from which figures of Irish nationalist politics were notably absent. The extent of symbolic space, devoted to representing the imperial connection, was so great that one contemporary commentator was drawn to observe that Dublin is connected with Irish patriotism only by the scaffold and the gallows. Statue and column do indeed rise there, but not to honour the sons of the soil. The public idols are foreign potentates and foreign heroes. The Irish people are doomed to see in every place the monument of their subjugation. Before the Senate House, the statue of their conqueror. Within the walls, tapestries with the defeats of their fathers. No public statue of an illustrious Irishman has ever graced the Irish capital. No monument exists to which the gaze of the young Irish children can be directed while their fathers tell them, This was to the glory of your countrymen. 
even the luster Dublin borrowed from her great Norman colonists, has passed away. These sentiments were echoed in the newspaper The Nation, where it was noted, We now have statues to William the Dutchman, to the four Georges, all either German by birth or German by feeling, to Nelson, a great admiral, but an Englishman, while not a single statue of any of the many celebrated Irishmen whom their country should honour adorns a street or square of our beautiful metropolis. As the political context in Ireland changed, so too did the meaning attached to the statues dedicated to members of the British monarchy. They increasingly became sites of protest and contestation rather than of loyalty to empire. For example, the monument dedicated to King William III in College Green was repeatedly defaced over the course of succeeding decades and was often daubed with paint in acts of political protest. In the second half of the 19th century, the supremacy in statuary enjoyed by imperial statues was challenged both geographically and numerically by the unveiling of monuments dedicated to figures drawn from the country sphere of Irish culture, literature and nationalist politics. After the famine, monuments were erected in commemoration of figures drawn from the realm of Anglo-Irish literature, such as Oliver Goldsmith and Thomas Moore. Individuals who had played leading roles in the various, often contentious strands of Irish nationalist and republican politics were also memorialised. Throughout the country, local organising committees were established to set about erecting monuments to their respective leaders and heroes. In Dublin, monuments were erected in honour of Daniel O'Connell and later to Charles Stuart Parnell, both of whom had been to the fore of constitutional politics during the 19th century. Men who had led sections of the population in violent revolt and sought the creation of an independent Irish Republic were also honoured. Among them was William Smith O'Brien. By way of sharp contrast, statues dedicated to figures of the British administration were erected in increasingly peripheral locations, such as the Phoenix Park or the private domain of St Stephen's Green. Contentious debates often accompanied plans to erect monuments. Committees sought out prized locations, engaged native sculptors, and planned elaborate unveiling ceremonies which invariably drew enormous crowds. During the unveiling of the O'Connell Monument, for example, we are told that The eve of one of Ireland's greatest days has now arrived. Every element of success attended the Centennial and O'Connell celebration. Numbers, strength, enthusiasm, and all the adjuncts, natural and artificial, of popular triumph wait upon tomorrow's festival. If the O'Connell bronze, whose heroic beauty will be revealed to the populace tomorrow, could speak, it might tell them, too, that many monster meetings of the past look down upon them. Tara Hill and Mullochmast, the meetings of the funeral, the foundation stone and the centenary, stand before the people for comparisons with tomorrow's. As icons of nationalist identity, these monuments stood in marked contrast to earlier emblems of empire. They gave tangible expression to the increasingly nationalist complexion of Dublin Corporation and to the power struggle that persisted between Britain and one of its kingdoms, Ireland. It is striking that these figures, 
drawn almost exclusively from Irish political, cultural and religious circles, should be unveiled in a country that remained part of the British Empire. The symbolic spaces, occupied by monuments dedicated to royal monarchs, were used to legitimise the authority of the British Empire. They became focal points around which choreographed celebrations took place. However, while they may have focused attention on specific individuals and created in the process a memory system carved in stone, the space colonised by the erection of monuments was not static. Even before the achievement of political independence in Ireland, these monuments were used as rallying points to express opposition to the established political regime. At the same time, a host of new public statues contributed to the visual expression of a sense of Irish national identity. After the achievement of political independence in 1922 and the establishment of the Irish Free State, symbolic space became an increasingly important tool of the nation-building project. Throughout the 26 counties, attempts were made to rename streets and even towns and villages. New architectural and planning projects proclaimed in space the emergence of the independent state. Dublin had regained its capital status, and debates raged there about the location of new government buildings and the reconstruction of buildings that had been destroyed during the preceding years. During ensuing decades, aspects of the cultural landscape that had formerly been central to the visual expression of imperial rule and also part of a strategy of resistance to the colonial other, became instead essential tools in supporting the ideology of the new regime. As efforts to build and consolidate nationhood began in earnest after 1922, statues were used as signifiers of cultural and political identity. Successive administrations and local authorities were adept at using monuments and the choreographed ritual that went with their unveiling to best advantage. Monuments, dedicated to the heroes of the rebellion, were built as part of a strong desire to make real the struggle that the country had come through. The rising of 1916, coupled with the War of Independence and Civil War, provided a host of new heroes to stand upon pedestals throughout the city and country. These monuments, in both their geography and iconography, carved out a visible landscape of memory as a testament to the new political situation. In the new capital, figures like Michael Collins, Arthur Griffith and Kevin O'Higgins were commemorated in a cenotaph erected at the rear of Leinster House. Other leading figures of the Rising also found positions of public prominence in the city. The 1916 Rising, however, was not the only impetus behind public sculpture in Free State Dublin. Other earlier rebellions, including those of 1798 and 1848, also shaped symbolic space. In September 1945, the centenary of the death of the Irish poet and patriot Thomas Davis was the catalyst for a display of Irish nationalism on the streets of the capital, when the foundation stone of a statue dedicated to him was laid in St Stephen's Green. The Fenian leader and poet Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa was also commemorated with a monument in 1954, while a monument of Robert Emmett was donated to the state in 1967 and erected on St Stephen's Green shortly after. 
During the same period, memories that did not fit so easily with the ideology of the new regime were wiped clean from the landscape. This demonstrates the significance of forgetting in the nation-building process. Symbolic spaces that did not conform to a notion of the free state as a Catholic and a nationalist nation were willfully destroyed or officially removed. It was a testimony to their symbolic potency. It would seem that the people and the events which these monuments focused attention upon had become part of what the historical geographer Brian Osborne refers to as the ideological bric-a-brac of a former era. So, older icons of empire were unceremoniously bombed from their pedestals by dissident groups, like, for example, the monuments of Kings William III and George II, or Lord Gough and the Earl of Carlisle. Others were officially removed by the state. In 1948, for example, the statue of Queen Victoria, that had stood outside Leinster House since 1908, was removed in a symbolic gesture that coincided with Ireland's departure from the Commonwealth. It was later to re-emerge in the Australian capital, Sydney, in 1988, as a gift from the Irish government on the occasion of the bicentenary of white settlement in Australia. Perhaps the most famous monument to be removed from the cultural landscape after independence, however, was the one I mentioned earlier, Nelson's Pillar, which was destroyed in 1966. In Ireland, therefore, before and after the achievement of political independence, symbolic spaces proved to be especially important in underpinning narratives of national identity. With increasing distance from the independence struggle, however, and the inevitable cultural maturing of the state, it would seem that such spaces no longer retain the powerful significance they once possessed. Monuments that had been erected with such choreographed ritual as symbols of a nationalist ideology would seem to have lost much of their symbolic potency in the contemporary context. This raises some interesting issues regarding the contemporary iconography of the island space. In many ways, the new spire of Dublin speaks volumes of the cultural and political climate that now prevails in Ireland. As the centrepiece of the O'Connell Street Integrated Action Plan, it is intended to become the signature of the city in the 21st century, a Dublin version of Paris's Eiffel Tower or Sydney's Opera House. This monument is striking for a number of reasons, not least its utter simplicity, its ahistorical nature and complete lack of any political association. These factors combined to make it, in the eyes of the judging panel, an ideal emblem for the current time. In these respects, the Monument of Light stands in marked contrast to earlier emblems of nationhood that marked the Free State's symbolic geography after 1922. It captures in microcosm a much broader, paradigmatic shift that has taken place in Irish political and cultural life during the modern period. It's a shift from dependence to independence, from the modern to the postmodern, and from being an inward-looking island on the periphery of Europe to an outward-looking contributor to the European superstate in an era of globalisation. It symbolises the changing conception of culture that now prevails and which transcends narrow ethnic boundaries. This conception recognises that Irish identity 
crosses over the simple binary oppositions of Catholic and Protestant, nationalist and unionist, republican and loyalist, and is contested along new axes of differentiation. This novel conception of identity found tangible expression in the creation of another highly symbolic Irish monumental space, even though, intriguingly, it was located outside Ireland. In November 1998, on the 80th anniversary commemoration of Armistice Day, a 110-foot-high Irish round tower, made from 400 tonnes of stone from the former Mullingar workhouse, was erected in Belgium. It is located at the Flanders Peace Park in the Belgian village of Messine, the place where Irish members of the British Army died, side by side with their British counterparts in World War I. It was unveiled by the Irish President Mary McAleese, who was accompanied by Queen Elizabeth. For the first time, the Irish state formally honoured the quarter of a million Irish people who served and the 50,000 who died in this war. This event forms a distinct contrast with the events surrounding the erection and fate of the Irish National War Memorial in Dublin's Island Bridge, erected some years earlier. That commemorative project, which was begun in the 1920s, met with antipathy from many in Free State Ireland who had resented the participation of Irish people in the British war effort. The implacable opposition from some quarters ensured that the project took many years to complete. The Memorial Park subsequently fell into a state of disrepair and was not restored until the late 1980s when the formal dedication ceremony finally took place. Today Ireland is often referred to as the Celtic Tiger. It's an overused and by now cliched metaphor that signals the economic success of a small independent nation confident in its Irish, European and global identity. An internationalist rather than a purely nationalist spirit has come to characterise the political climate and this has had a number of implications for the cultural landscape. Throughout the country, urban renewal projects and tax incentives are changing the face of Irish cultural landscapes. Massive out-of-town shopping centres are in competition with city centre shopping districts. The country, it would seem, has bought into a European and a global iconography that is related to the hegemony of a consumer society. The country's international vocation has been promoted and this is in sharp contrast to the isolationist situation that prevailed in the immediate aftermath of independence. Ireland has taken its place among the nations and no longer labours under a post-colonial sense of inferiority. This is reflected in the island's urban and rural spaces, where a new iconography is currently being inscribed. It is not necessarily preoccupied with the symbols of an exclusively national identity. Radically different to that of 70 years ago, this iconography continues to demonstrate the power of space. It also reiterates the fact that each generation weaves its world out of image and symbol and provides the geographer with cultural landscapes and symbolic spaces worthy of decoding and interpretation. That was Dr Yvonne Whelan of the Irish Academy for Cultural Studies, Derry, and her lecture, Symbolic Streetscapes.
interrogating monumental spaces of Dublin from the 2002 RT Radio 1 Thomas Davis Lecture Series, Engaging Spaces. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio 1 forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. For me, producer Cleanani Anlun, thank you for listening. Thank you.